Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome everybody back to my favorite time of the week and by popular demand, we're very lucky to have Brigadier Jim Richardson, James, um, who is the Chief Executive of the Hague Housing Trust, a uh, charity supporting military men and women and their families with over 1,600 properties around the country. And James will be talking about that later on. James, great to have you on board. And tell us a bit about what you're doing at the moment with that. And then we're going to go back to your experience as a, as a brigadier and uh, from Sigmund to brigadier in the army, all the things you learned. Um, but firstly, tell us a bit about what the Hague Housing Trust does right now. Uh, Jonathan, yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> Hague Housing Trust is, um, is um, a military charity and we look after veterans and their families who've come into accommodation needs uh, through you know, many, many reasons, invalided out of the army, a bereavement, uh, uh, some other you know, mishap in their life. And uh, we've got 1,600 you know, affordable charitable rent homes all over the UK, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and some of the Channel Islands. And we, we let them to, to, to families in, in, in need. And um, you know, I think we're fortunate as a charity at the moment, as many charities are suffering the, their inability to take donations and, and create the income so they can deliver their outputs. Um, our uh, funds really come from the rents that people pay. And although they've been affected by the economic fallout of COVID uh, uh, with it, uh, not so much. So we're still able to function and keep delivering the services you know, we do, except all my staff are now uh, spread to the four winds uh, and working from home and working from home well yeah. uh, in, you know, in delivery of what we do. No, that's great. And we're going to go on to dealing with the crisis in a moment, but what are you finding the the people who you're helping during COVID-19, what is some of the pain points for them and, and how are you alleviating or taking the pressure off them um, during this really challenging and long time that it's going on for? Well, I, I, I think for many, um, there's, you know, there's a level of anxiety uh, that they have, you know, anxiety about health, anxiety financially as their incomes have, have, have been changed, anxiety about loved ones, uh, you know, and some wider relationships and also, you know, missing that connectivity, seeing friends and family and the like. So there is this anxiety, uh, you know, that, you know, that bubbles along and, and some of it <clears throat> sort of manifests itself in unusual ways. So, you know, I'm a landlord and I've got to uh, maintain compliant regulations with some safety uh, laws, such as a landlord's gas safety requirement. And of course, we've got 1600 homes over this sort of two months that have been closed uh, you know, closed down. You know, there's, there's been a couple of hundred that have needed to have their gas inspections done, and just some households are saying, "No, you're not coming in my house." You know, I, you know, I don't want that to happen. Yet, um, they're buffering against my legal requirement in order to do that. And it's about creating for them the confidence of the method of which our operatives will use uh, in order to do it, and what they should do to minimise any risk. Uh, you know, to you know, to themselves. So, uh, you know, an awful lot of assurance and communications and care uh, taken with you know with people who have, you know, 
uh, heightened <coughs> states of, pain of anxiety. Um, so uh, yeah, that's um, that, that keeps that keeps us all busy. Yeah, and, and you know, we we know each other from a long time ago, uh, James. When we were serving together, I was actually you were um, one of the very uh, capable troop commanders. I learned a lot from you during that time. But what I uh, I've always admired about you is you began life. Uh, on the technical side, as the equivalent of a private soldier, but you've gone up all the rungs of the ladder, jumped many of them, from there to a brigade commander. I don't know how many runs is, is that from signalman to brigadier. I've never counted them. Well, well, well if, I, if I'd have gone through all of them, it's probably about twenty, I suppose. But I, yeah. you know, I jumped. You know, I jumped a few. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I was just, I, I was just very fortunate. Yeah, you know, I joined the army age sixteen um, as a, as an apprentice. Um, Took to it like a duck to water. Loved it. Loved soldiering, um, and yeah, I I learned to be an electronic engineer. That's yeah, and that's what I did. But I was given an opportunity uh, when I was, you know, in my first unit uh, to apply for a commission. I took that opportunity and did, uh, and you know, really really enjoyed my commission career. But I yeah. you know I chose to come back to Royal Signals and um, lead some of the soldiers, you know, one of whom I had been, uh, you know, previously and. Uh, had a very very rewarding um, career and and finished yeah. up you know, sort of you know, commanding a brigade, but you know not of signalers, but of uh, you know all arms, uh, a regional brigade based up in Nottingham. It was, it was uh, a fantastic opportunity. And what about you know dealing? This is all about dealing with a crisis and challenging times. What would be your advice about? You know, the difficult things that happen and resilience and things that you've learned, which you could pass on to the people who are listening to this podcast, either live or the recording a bit later. Yeah. And so my, my you know, approach to this, and I, and I think it, it started with me when I was sort of sort of 16, the way I was trained as a, you know, as, a, as an apprentice, that, that many now may look through a different lens and say, well, you were overtrained um, uh, uh, to do that. But but what I took it as, as actually, they were embedding resilience in me. They were embedding skills in me that they did not know when, when I would, when I would need them. And that's sort of been my mantra as the way that, I, you know, I look at crisis management. Preparing for a crisis doesn't start when the crisis emerges or even when it's on the horizon. It starts a long, long way before, before you know what sort of crisis is going to, is going to go to appear. And you have to develop resilience, personal resilience, team resilience, uh, 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 and resilience of, of all your, of your support functions, so that you are both adaptable and agile to face these crises when they come up. Because the crisis, by the nature of it, does not give you time uh, to you know to do those things. Then uh, it, it's on you, uh, it's in your face, and you've got to deal with it. And so the amount of preparation that you can do uh, beforehand will always pay uh, dividends. And I. You know, I don't. Um, you know, I don't agree with a. You know, it's overtraining. It's about building resilience uh, into people, to teams, uh, and to and support systems uh, that enables people to to cope with crisis. And what do you think the lesson is? Talk about training. Uh, what do you think the lesson is from the military? Seem to spend a lot of money on training people for crisis and emergency planning, um, but businesses try and cut costs, keep everything down. You know, many in this crisis, I'm personally finding are saying, you know, we're, we're gonna cut back on all leadership development, all coaching, not gonna do any of that. But this is in the middle of a crisis. I mean, how wise is that in your view? Well, it, 
it, you know, it's it, it's the opposite way to the direction of travel uh, that they ought to be um, going. And, and in fact, um, if you ever cut back on uh, on, on training and developing uh, resilience, you will always be unprepared for the next crisis. And the and another crisis will come. Um, we must never. I think it's the biggest sort of uh, you know fault uh, that 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 we could be susceptible to to think that bad things will never happen. Uh, crisis will always happen uh, to us, and and we've just got to to be prepared for it when it comes. We don't know what shape it, it, it is going to be, but it, but but it's going to it, you know it's going to be there. So that attitude into into training and just preparing that enrichment that depth and breadth um and it, and it is very empowering also in you know in the in the pupils the students the soldiers whoever it is uh, are, are are being taught uh, and trained uh because uh they it, it just opens up uh you know all sorts of thoughts about what their capabilities are and mm -hmm. and everybody is uh, has a capability latent that you've just got to find the right key no, great, great advice. Just, sure. just sort of looking at the, um, the sort of taking all your sort of learnings from from your time in the military. How are you sort of applying that to, to crisis management in, in in the business that you're that you're running at the moment? Yeah. So, um, this you know something I always thought, and I always I always said to to you know my units or whatever, even the staff headquarters when I was doing that when I was the you know, running Glasgow, the Army Personnel Centre, uh, is um, never be never be shy or, or in any way apologetic for running at eighty to ninety percent of capacity. Um, that's that's where we should be at steady state, in order that you know, you've got headroom uh, when when real crises do come. Because if you run at one hundred percent all the time, not only are you fragging your people and tiring them out uh, and leaving no room for that personal development with it but when a real crisis hits where do you go from 100 percent? because you you can't make a person work at 110 120 120 uh, percent uh, and it, you know it's an analogy i used to say uh to you know what my, my people is as uh i'm a little bit of a fan of formula one i quite like watching it uh, and everything else and you hear uh over, over there martin Brundle says he's saving his tires you know he's not going at 100 percent you know what he's doing is you know he's managing this uh, out so so he's fit for later or or when he does come to a need to do, defend himself he, you know he's got that he's got the hundred percent that he can go to and, and and that's been really my you know philosophy on the way that I've, I've, I've an awful lot of things if you Great. go at a hundred percent of everything then uh, you will um, you've got nowhere to go when a crisis hits well, well picking up on that Jim I'm, I'm finding time again with clients that I do talk to is that they're burnt out at the moment and they've only been going 12 weeks and yeah. I go guys you know when are you going back to the office well it probably won't be until after Christmas yeah so so like you've got to pace yourself at this and uh, when are you taking a holiday well not until later in the summer why not a long weekend oh, I haven't got time I'm too busy you know it's like I haven't got time to stop and refuel I'm too busy in the fast lane you, you, you're going to run out of juice in the fast lane at speed and I've seen people have major breakdowns and get very ill because they've just kept going. One guy been working in the same firm for 22 years and now he just can't face going back because he's just absolutely burnt out, exhausted, mentally, uh, very badly damaged. 
and they're going, well, when are you coming back to work? Or come back to work two days a week. No, you know, just get better. But they can't see that because it's not a broken leg. They're not in a wheelchair or paralyzed. But, no, but absolutely, absolutely Jonathan. It's it's such a strange time for that, though, isn't it? It's, it's such a weird time where we're, we're all um, in crisis management, both at work and at home and with our family and with our friends. It's, it's such a tough time. I've got a little you know, vignette about that. So I came straight out of the military to, to run Hague Housing Trust. But although it wasn't my first sort of ex exposure to civilians, not that they're any really different from people who aren't civilians. But um, my finance director is still still with me now. And, you know, you know, brilliant uh, uh, chartered, uh, chartered accountant and, and you know, is that risk averse person that you need to be, who is who is sort of watching my money there. But he went on holiday. I've only been in post about six or seven weeks. And he sent me an email and says, here's my phone number. Here's my email. Should you need to get me? Where are you going? He says, I'm going to Dominica. I said, well, what do I need your phone number for? Uh, and he said, well, you know, in case you get one. I said, well, how will, you know, what are we going to do if we need you? So, so let your number two take over. How are we going to have a, a resilient organization? How is your number two ever going to be replace you if we don't give them this, you know, this chance and opportunity to do it? Uh, yeah. And, you know, we do have to get, you know, in, in the military, and I think we spoke about this before, every time we, you know, we did these exercises, uh, Jonathan, you always kill the boss at some stage. You make the second in command take over. It's how you train people to be a boss, you know, in the in the in the future by exposing them to those, uh, you know, to those things. You know, none of us are irreplaceable. No, that's a great one. And we're quite interested in stories about dealing with a crisis. And you had a lovely one about the Gulf War with the uh, the communication system, which was prepared for Germany, but not for the Gulf War. Do you want to tell that and really the lesson about emergency planning, dealing with the crisis, how people come up with solutions and, and you're learning from that? Yeah, so I, I, you know, I wasn't I wasn't there, but I was a professional communicator and of course it started my life as an electronic engineer. So I was I was interested in it, but uh, there was a, tar a system, a communication system uh, rolled out in the in the mid eighties in Germany called uh, Ptarmigan. Uh, and it was the most advanced communication system that existed with the military at the time. Mobile phones before mobile phones uh, existed and you know, quite big data pipes actually you know, passing uh, information around the battlefield. But it was designed for Germany where these communication elements would sit on top of hills and have microwave links to each other about 30 kilometers apart uh, and then flood uh, the battlefield down with, 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 with data and communications. But then Saddam Hussein invaded you know, Kuwait and we took the 1st Armoured Division over uh, to Saudi Arabia uh, and then you know, eventually you know, fight that first, uh, that, that first Gulf War. But we had a communication system that was now stretched over thousands of miles uh, and wasn't on hills, it was on a flat desert. Uh, and we had to make it work together. And the way that it was done was to bring satellites in to be satellite bridges. But the, the computers that ran the communications didn't like the fact that <laughs> it, it, instead of being the millisecond communication difference of the 30 kilometers of a microwave link, it was now about a quarter of a second as the signal went up to a satellite and came back down. And uh, the, the computer said, no, <laughs> I'm, not having, I'm not having this. <clears throat> and, and this multi, multi million pound communication system, the one that enabled all of the data, all of the information sharing to First Armour Division to stop working. And this uh, a staff sergeant, 29-year-old um, young soldier, you know, sort of 
you know, midway up the ranks of the non-commissioned uh, ranks, went back to first principles and designed a time buffer to fool the computers within the, the switches uh, that there was a quarter of a second delay uh, here and that they were just 30 kilometers uh, apart. Um, and he built it from first, from first principles, put it to use and hey presto, you know, it, it worked. And here was, um, you know, a, uh, you know, he never he never knew what he was going to have to build when he was trained as a form of signals, but he was trained to degree level uh, in electronic en engineering, able to take something back right to uh, the first principles to solve uh, uh, something. And, uh, you know, from that moment on, you know, a mantra went in my head is, you, you know, it, it, we never call it overtraining. It's about resilience and preparing for crisis. And that's the way that I that I approach training. Uh, throughout my, the rest of my military career, and indeed uh, apply the same here in Hague. That's a really good point. And one of the things that's coming up, um, uh, General James Shaw was talking about this, Jim Bashel was talking about this, that when you had things like the tanker strike and uh, foot and mouth and things like this with uh, sheep uh, carcasses being burnt in Cumbria and stuff, that there's a very different approach between the military, which is just in case, you have it just in case, and much of business, and we've seen this with the NHS, um, just in time. But of course, just in time means you don't waste money on having lots of PPE equipment waiting for a rainy day, which might not happen for 10 years. Um, but we've been badly caught out by this. What's, what's your learning between these two approaches of the more expensive, but the just in case, versus the, the leaner, capitalist just in time yeah I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be you know completely dismissive of, of you know some of the more modern logistic practices uh, uh, you know that exist and in fact the military have have you know taken some of them uh, and and used them but uh, we're now talking about risk we're talking about likelihood and consequence of, of, of things and getting the balance right of the way that you the way that you do that and I think some of the military approach uh, to, uh, to these to these things is just that inherent flexibility of, of they know what a good logistic system works and whether you're moving bullets or face masks, actually it's the same sort of thing. With, uh, in, without you know, talking you know, to military, uh, the military have what they call an echelon system, the F echelon, the fighting echelon, uh, but yet there's behind them there are these this French word because first professional army was French, but um, of this ability to keep pushing uh, the combat supplies further and further forward uh, so that they're, you know, they're there and ready. And, and when the military came in to help sort out the distribution of PPE, you know, to the NHS, it just brought back, you know, a, probably a 200 year old system of echeloning uh, the way that these combat supplies, different war, not bullets, face masks and PPE, but you know, nonetheless, vital equipment needed at the front line. Yeah. Um, but it is just the general, you know, flexibility that uh, that you see with you know, the, the the military taking swabs out of people's mouths and you know, you know, noses in order to do the you know the, the the testing and get that testing capacity so central to controlling this uh, uh, this virus and doing that, um, organizing um, distribution of 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 P PPE. Sending people into into Gold Command of the Resilience Headquarters of different uh, counties to bring to bring that ability to you know of, of 
well, this is how the military approach this. This is how we create situation awareness. Uh, and it's not rocket science, but, but these organizations haven't seen and done that uh, yeah. uh, before. Um, and so I think it's that flexibility actually that makes the, um, the military so ubiquitous in, in being able to assist in these, in these crises. In these crises. And, and thinking about crises, um, I'd be really interested hearing from, from you, James, on an inspiring leader that you admired and the qualities they had and what we could learn from that, listening to that. And also then after that, perhaps you could talk about an inspiring team you've been part of and how that worked well in the crisis. And again, what the, the practical tips are that you could pass from that uh, for people to be listening and applying to their own jobs in business. Yeah, so um, and I've had been a fortune to speak about him before, but I worked for General David Petraeus in, in Iraq in 2005. Uh, and he he wasn't in command when I... When, when, when I arrived and I was the chief of campaign plans and you know, my role was the chief strategic planner but um, Iraq was uh, just a, a very bad place at the time it was in civil war uh, uh, and you know, the death count was in the thousands uh, every, every day as uh, um, you know, as the country was just uh, spiraling down into this. Um, David Petraeus came out uh, 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 took uh, uh, command and, and almost immediately started changing the strategic direction of the way that forces would operate uh, there. And he, dis- he he spread out his force rather than you know, what was a perception uh, before of, of the American army being being focused at what they call force protection, you know, protecting themselves as, the, as their foremost purpose. Um, he distributed them out uh, to to start dominating. Uh, the terrain to gain intelligence about what was going on to breed confidence and security in into the population and the casualty count of the american forces started to to grow but he he kept his uh uh his determination that this was going to work and it did work uh and um uh everything started to you know to to, to turn around uh, the rule of law um you know, getting the, the judicial system up and running, getting commerce and banking and everything else working. And that's what his brain trust was. His brain trust wasn't hundreds of military people. His brain trust was people from Columbia University, from uh, IMF, uh, people who are uh, Arabs who understood Arabs uh, from, you know, from embassies around the world. You know, he, he took the American ambassador out of Morocco and sort of uh, um, uh, and brought him and... and uh, Myself and a chap called H.R. McMaster, um, ended up as a three-star in the U.S. forces. Um, uh, we um, we co-chaired this brains trust and and extracted all of you know, their ability themselves and and then they all went and I had to then write a plan. Uh, but it was probably oh, same, same with that. That's a really interesting aspect which people wouldn't expect the military to do. What did you learn from that that people could apply now in COVID nineteen in the way they run their own teams and their own small businesses or other businesses? What do you what would you learn from that? Um, that uh, the, the solutions to this are not are not singular. Iraq was not a military solution. Uh, uh, it wasn't an economic solution or an education or a rule of law. Uh, it was all of those, and it's this Gordian knot of of how you intertwine. And make every part play its role at the time. You know, an analogy to an orchestra. You know, the right note at the right time on the score uh, is uh, is what, what, what you know what makes music uh, at, uh, at at the end of it. And and 
it is, you know, as I've watched, you know, this, you know, everything, everything un, unfold, uh, you know, with, with, you know, with COVID, we were led to believe, you know, and different things were different priorities at a certain time. We had to stop the NHS being, NHS being overwhelmed, but there are so many other um, interplays in them. You know, uh, you know, our economic threat is as big probably as our as our medical threat uh, that we face at the moment, an educational uh, risk against our, you know, our young, our, our young people uh, in, in employment and mental health uh, being huge uh, at risk at the moment. So I think it's, it's that breadth to understand that, that complex uh, problems need complex solutions um, uh, to them. Yeah, very good. And what about, what about teams? So that was McMaster's and 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 you and David General David Petraeus and the Brains Trust, which was a fascinating moment in history to be part of that and and to write things up from that. What about a, a great team and and what did qualities did you see a really effective team? Because sometimes teams get very toxic in a crisis and they all fall apart, and start blaming each other, and not collaborating, or they all yeah. just say everything's fine when there's no there's no um, challenge of each other's. What what? What about when you've been in a, in a really good team in a, in a crisis? Yeah, I, I, I probably take myself back quite a few years now into into Bosnia and um, uh, commanding a squadron um, in Bosnia. Now I'd, I'd only been in Bang uh, in Sarajevo for a year doing my staff job, and and the military and all its you know wisdom said, ah, Richardson, you can go for another six month tour in Banja Luka. So I did a really extended tour in Bosnia over the period uh, sort of ninety five through ninety seven. And uh, I took over a squadron, but the, we were trying to politically extract ourselves. Britain was trying to extract ourselves with the size of commitment that we'd had in Bosnia. Dayton had happened, everything was going on, but yet there was still a, you know, an awful lot uh, to do. And so a, a regiment pulled out, and my squadron took over, and suddenly I had to try and do something which was three to four times bigger than me uh, to be able to do it, yet all of the users of the communications information systems were used to a, a, a very rich sort of um, uh, provision and yet I had to do it you know with a quarter less uh, and that's when I really relied on this team uh, uh, that, that, you know, that I had and, and being able to because the area was the size of Wales being able to delegate and empower down to low levels making sure that they understood intent of what we were trying to uh, to do understand the the situational awareness what their part was within it working to a common uh, uh, purpose never hiding bad news uh, you know always you know having the trust uh, in the team in me in the leadership that that if something went wrong the boss needs to know about it because only then can he fix it uh, and to you know to take away um, which sometimes is susceptible in some organisations where something goes wrong and nobody wants to be the person that tells the boss the bad news. Uh, well, uh, you know, I, I belong to the, the school of the old adage, bad news never gets better with age. Um, so uh, that, that was my strong team, uh, I, I, I think. And, and uh, funny thing, uh, uh, Jonathan, I was invited onto a Zoom conference on Saturday night with, this was 20 years ago, uh, with some of my old soldiers who then just sent me an invite. Boss, would love it if you joined the Zoom. So oh. we just 
a blether and an atter uh, about it. Just a really strong thing. Well, that's lovely. Before I hand over to Ben, I'd love to, uh, amusing stories are always good in a crisis. It cheers people up, takes the tension out. You, you owe Nick Pope a story uh, about, about uh, that he, he threw out the challenge to you. And then perhaps one, one other brief story about how soldiers have good humor in, in bad situations. So over okay. to you, Tim. Yeah, yeah. So, so Nick signed off when you told him that I was going to be on here. And he said, ah, sumo. Uh, and yeah, Nick likes to call me sumo. And as probably you can tell by your screen, don't adjust your camera. And I'm a, <laughs> quite big, I'm a big set chap. And, uh, you know, I've always been, I, but I've always been strong and fast. Um, you were a, you were a 200 meter sprinter for the army, were you? Uh, 400 meters and, and throw the javelin uh, as as well. But my my sort of first 30 yards were very explosive, and I you know I could keep up with all the 100 meter sprinters over the first 30 to 40 yards. It was afterwards that they sort of got away from me. Uh, and but I was ex I was just explosive and strong. Uh, and uh, we were at uh, Royal Military College of Science at Shrivenham. We were all doing a course together. You were on the same same course. Jonathan, before we went to Staff College. Uh, and um, we're in sort of uh, uh, the armor place. And what this professor said, it, we've got some breakable material here. Uh, this is this layered Kevlar and tungsten and everything else. And it's in a big sheet and it's unbreakable um, uh, for you to do that. And you sort of put it between um, on, two, on two blocks. And we're all in this lecture theater together. And somebody said, sumo, sumo. <laughs> And and so I had to go up there, and I we were in in uniform. I had my boots on, and I went up there, and I I just put my foot straight through it, <laughs> um, through it, and it's just you know big strong legs and and just explosive sort of power that I've that I had when I was a young sportsman, uh, and, uh, and so that you can't then lose the name. That's it, Sumo. Uh, yeah, sumo. Uh, sumo. That's great. No, thank you. Fantastic. Well, maybe we'll say. We'll save the next story after Ben's in interjection with a bit of yeah, sure. fire. Over to you, Ben. Sure. We always uh, look at some of the ha the uh, habits that you've had during your life, Jim, that made you successful, and and we look into three different um, buckets: so healthy, wealthy, and wise. So, if you're ready, we'll just ask you some quick fire questions about about this. Um, to learn um, what's 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 kept you successful through 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 your um, career. So, um, first off, you've been in all sorts of uh, pretty high pressure, um, high stress situations and and um, and uh, experiences. It'd be great to know how you've maintained both the sort of healthy um, uh, mind and, and and body during this these um, experience. Yeah. So um, I would say in a, in a in a sort of phrase, try and be a valve, uh, you know, try and uh, release pressure uh, every night for yourself and and for your team um, uh, uh, around there. You know, focus on the critical, but but know and judge when to release um, the valve and, uh, you know, and just come down a level. You know, this old adage, save the tires, uh, don't run at 100 um, percent. And, and you know, just come down from where from you know from where you are. There's um there's, there's another link in here, and it's about it's about my my family and 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 Jonathan knows uh, knows my wife. Um, when I was away ever, uh, um, I was extremely conscious of my wife. Thought I was in danger 
100% of the time. The reality was 5%, 10% at best, there were key critical times, you know, you know, moving low level in the helicopter across Baghdad, you know, and uh, uh, with no lights on and think, you know, yeah, that focuses the mind at the time because you're not in control. But um, they think that we're in danger all of the time. And I try to call and communicate as much as I can, release that valve, just um, take the pressure off, lighten the moment, talk to her about as booking a holiday, you know, get on the internet, find out where we're going to go when I'm, when I'm home uh, and, and, and things like that. But also do it for your team and be, you know, look and listen carefully uh, uh, around them. And this is about, you know, building resilience before you know that, that the crisis is there. So, you, you know, you know the triggers, you know what you're looking for uh, and, and uh, be a valve, uh, um, release the pressure. That's my, that's my healthy tip. I like it. I like it. Um, and, uh, and something that you brought up earlier about, about um, having those exercises where your second in command takes, takes over and, and, and takes a bit of the, the responsibility. I think that's probably another great way of, of, of doing that, um, spreading some of the, the pressure and also preparing people for the, for the future. And that's come up a few times in our, in our interviews, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, very much so. And, you know, delegating, you know, um, you know, as, as often and as early, you know, as you can, um, and even to some of the most junior people in your organization, if you can find something that you, and what a sense of achievement they get when they succeed uh, mm. uh, with it. So it, it, it's, uh, yeah, very worthwhile. Fantastic. <laughs> the second thing is, is about wealthy. So obviously in this current climate, there's a lot of people out there who are struggling, um, who are in uh, tough situations. Um, so we, we always ask everybody yeah, what their best piece of advice about wealth or money is that they give often or they've been given. Yeah, uh, and without being pretentious here, Oscar Wilde nailed it, uh, of, uh, of that you should avoid knowing the price of everything but the value of nothing. Uh, uh, here. And um, th there's, a, you know, there's a, a, a saying that I have here, in, it's specifically in Hague, uh, and I talk about about near cash and far cash. Uh, and people look at me and they're puzzled and I explain what I mean. And I said, look, so we're, you know, we have an annual budget and that's near cash, but yet over the lifetime of something, we'll be spending money for years and years and years. Let's say it's a boiler replacement, you know, a, you know, a heat and power unit in, a, in one, of our, one of our homes. If we buy cheap, we buy twice. Uh, so don't make your decisions just about near cash about well, that boiler is a thousand pounds cheaper than that one. Think about the lifetime costs uh, of, of, of these decisions that you're making. Try and be strategic, especially with strategic things. Um, now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't advocate that you know, if you were buying big biros, but when you're buying things that are gonna last for 10 years, uh, you know, think about, think about you know, the near cash decision against the far cash implication of, of what you're doing. What's the lifetime cost? Uh, uh, of that decision that you're uh, that you're making, um, and and I have a you know mantra: buy cheap, buy twice, uh, and I try and avoid it. Know the you know, don't go on the cost uh, and the price of everything. Go on the value of everything. Brilliant, lovely, lovely. And um, finally, for this section, just looking at um, a piece of wisdom that you strive to live live your life by. Yeah, I. I like to be 100% honest in everything 
that I, I, I do. I'm not Machiavelli. I don't pretend to be a Machiavelli and there is nothing uh, hidden in the way that I interact with anybody about anything. So I manage expectations, even if that's bad uh, 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 news. The truth will always come out, um, uh, you, know, you know, whatever. And bad news never gets better with with, you know, with age. So it, it is that, <clears throat> you know, just crystal honesty uh, of 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 dealing uh, with people it gets you into 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 trouble sometimes if a waiter asks you in a restaurant, you know, how's your food? But but I, I do. Um, you know, much my wife is, is can't say that. I said, well, he asked me. So um, you know, almost I can be, you know, almost like Forrest Gump, you know, in, in it. Just this coruscating honesty in things. But I but I just find uh, in this, you know, in the business that we're doing here, uh, of, of, of what we're trying trying to do. Uh, in in this in this charity that that if you don't it comes back and bites you and mm. crystal honesty that's my wisdom yeah no, i agree with that and, and i love the um the saying that uh that uh, bad news doesn't age well it's um it's so true just uh get it out there <laughs> one, one of the things I, I wanted to to ask you was um about the stage of the crisis that we're in now so a lot of businesses a lot of people are looking at how do they get people back to work? How do they get people back to work safely? Um, what does that look like? How's that sort of impacting you and how are you, you, you sort of dealing with that? Yeah, so, um, and again, it's a little bit, uh, Ben, like <coughs> your, your, your approach to a crisis. So I started on work of how people come back to the office as soon as they left mm. uh, the office. And in fact, we're all prepared uh, now for people to come back. We won't have the same capacity, um, you know, in order to keep, social distancing and, and things like that. So, but I engaged very quickly. What is it going to look like? Manage the expectations and then set some clear priorities on, on who could be returning to work in what order, or, or not returning to work, returning to an office environment. Mm. They're all working very hard as to, as, as to where they are. And of course, we're in South West London here, uh, uh, um, but it, it was about who did not have um, at least at neutral, never mind optimum home working conditions. You know, some of our people are, you know, could be living in a bedstead or uh, you know something which was just not optimum. Yet, government advice: work from home uh, wherever wherever possible. Um, how do I bring people staff in who are not reliant on public transport? Because that's what I want to really keep them off. That's uh, mm -hmm. where they should meet. And then, lastly, and most people would think it would be strange, is is what business critical function do I need to bring back? That's my that's my third priority, actually, because one thing that's taught them is they've, they've just done it for 10 weeks. Uh, there is nothing business critical that they can't do uh, yeah. uh, out, out there. So build, starting to layer and build that confidence of the preparedness that, 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 that we have got, no pressure on them whatsoever um, uh, to do that. When they feel right, you know, they feel empowered, they're in charge. They've got a vote in this as well. Uh, and yet, and when they come here, they will see uh, you're an office with one-way systems, no entry signs, uh, ropes off things, sanitizers, cleaning, uh, and, and things like that. And all of the team just building that layer of confidence to people uh, about about returning to work. So they're going to feel positive uh, when, when you know when they do, and 
and, and want to. Uh, and you know, some of them are wanting to do that. Although I have reserved uh, the decision to whether I allow anyone back to work to myself. It's not a, it's not a delegated um, authority I'm prepared to give at the moment. I see, Sorry, you, I see you in your office in London. Yeah, I, I'm I'm the only one here, Jonathan. But yeah, I'm I, I, I'm in it in it now. Uh, and I, I sort of I come here once or twice a week because we we do have a grand maintenance team that, and that that keep our estate tidy, uh, the grass and everything else. And you, you will understand this. Uh, although I'm their boss's boss's boss, um, all of the other three bosses live further away than me. So twice a week I will come and see them, look at them making sure that they're okay, you know, and, and they're, they're gardeners, ground maintenance guys, keeping the grasses, grass down, cutting the hedges, trimming, laying plows, making it, making, it, making it a pleasant environment for everybody here. They can't work from home, clearly, and so it's just a bit of leadership. Come and see them, make sure they're all right. Yeah. Well, before um, we start to wrap up and uh, Ben asks you uh, the, the, the final question, um, just anything else that you'd like to share by way of uh, top tips and maybe even a, a funny story? Yeah, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little top tip uh, first, but and, it, and it's in the theme of what we talked about, sort of personal uh, development and uh, training or overtraining. And then uh, I'll finish up with with something from my first tour to Bosnia back back in 1992. So ever since I was a squadron commander, that's a major, uh, I've tried to take my warrant officers, so the senior non-commissioned uh, uh, ranks, uh, away for a personal development week, just me and them. Um, it, it, the sort of adage, uh, and it's a generalization, but they spend a lot of their time um, executing plans that the ops officer has written or the commanding officer has written, or whatever. But, uh, and um, although they're very, very capable of planning themselves, they're, they're normally not doing it. And I wanted to lift their horizons and see other things they did. So I, I, I used to bring them to London uh, for a week. We stay in the barracks, keep the costs um, uh, uh, down, but then take them to different um, parts of, of, of the fabric of the way the UK and defence is organised. So take them to the MOD, take them to... Uh, uh, the Australia High Commission, see how that works. Took the Tower of London uh, to see, you know, how the Yeoman Warders, in, you know, interact as, uh, you know, as ex-warrant officers in the, in, you know, in the armed uh, forces. Take them to industry and see how that works. Take them to a bank and see how finance uh, uh, works and things like that. In fact, um, uh, I I took warrant officers when I was commanding uh, 49 Brigade. I took them up to the city of London in 2008, just before the financial crisis sort of hit. You mean it happened because of you? And, yeah. and, yeah, and had, uh, uh, you know, and, uh, had a, you know, a financial analyst tell them what was going to happen. And of course, three months later, these warriors are all coming to me and saying, My goodness, how privileged were we to see that at the, you know, at the outset uh, of it? And it's not overtraining, uh, and I and I hope I embedded with with these warrant officers, many who went on to be commissioned and officers or went into other careers. I embedded with them horizons of which uh, of which they didn't think they considered uh, uh, previously, uh, and just gave them insights into things that just spurred their own natural uh, inqu uh, uh, inquisitiveness. I and I 
and, and I just love the closeness of it. It just really built that strong team. And I'll finish with a funny story, a very true story. Uh, um, Bosnia in 1992, and, and I'm there as the Brigade G2, the intelligence officer uh, of 11 Armed Brigade, uh, and uh, Andrew Cummings is our brigade commander, the same time that Bob Stewart is commanding the Cheshire Bas Battle Group up in Vitez. And, uh, and um, we trawled to find um, a British Army Serbo-Croat speaker uh, who could be the brigade commander's interpreter. Uh, because, you know, we were just worried about vetting of, of, trying, uh, of trying to get, uh, you know, a locally employed someone. Uh, and uh, this um, young man called Corporal Lazic um, um, uh, turned up, uh, you know, a Royal Artillery um, um, bombardier. Uh, a, a young guy. His uh, his uh, father was uh, uh, was a Serb by uh, by by birth, and he spoke fluent Serbo-Croat. Now, where we were in Split at the time, and going back and forth, and uh, this infernal route triangle over the mountains and everything else, uh, here in this civil war that was happening at the time, we kept having to cross lines uh, uh, between between um, uh, Croat controlled into Bosniak, the Bosnian Muslim control and Serbian control. Uh, and, you know, papers, and it was almost like a Second World War thing on papers, papers. And, um, but the brigade commanders kept getting holed up because as they saw Corporal Lazic's sort of papers, they recognized it as a Serb name. And it was, it caused in, you know, lots and lots of frustration where the brigade commander was being held up, you know, because his driver was having his papers inspected. So he got hold of me. And he said, uh, Jim, uh, sort this out, <laughs> sort this out. So uh, I got hold of him and I said, what's your mother's name? Uh, and he said, Abbott. And I said, right, you're now Corporal Abbott. Uh, and that's that's who you are. And we kept the circle of knowledge down and we got you know, sort of duplicate papers, ID cards, uh, his um, NATO travel orders, everything else done in the name of Abbott. Uh, and that was it. And suddenly we had no problems going through all of the, all of the checkpoints and everything else. But after three months, he was burnt out. Doing this instantaneous, simultaneous translation of Serbo-Croat for the Brigade Command and everything else. So we sent a trawl out uh, to get another Serbo-Croat. And there was a young uh, captain uh, uh, who was in the light infantry called Nick Gillich, uh, and he was coming. So I, and he was next in line. So I wrote to him by signal and I said, uh, you know, this is the background of the information. Um, what's your mother's maiden name? And uh, and he came back and he said, uh, I'm sorry, got a problem. It's Shostakovich. So, <laughs> uh, so, so we're sitting, uh, uh, having sort of, you know, combat supper, mess tin supper that night. But me and the other SO3s, the captains in the brigade quarters, and I'm saying, I've got to find a name here. And, um, and the first interpreter was called Abbott. So... So Nick Illich was suddenly called Captain Costello, and the interpreters were now Abbott and Costello. Uh, and we did all of his papers uh, like that uh, and everything else. And if you look back into the London Gazette in about 1994, you'll find out that Captain Nick Costello was awarded the QGM. Oh, wow. <laughs> there wow. you go. That's a lovely story. Ben, over to you for the final, final moment. Great stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Some really, really nice stories there and some, some great advice. Um, so good to have Jim, Jim on board and, um, and thanks for everyone that's uh, been 
listening in. But thanks, everybody, and um, see you next week. Thanks, Jim. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.